Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Thanks for joining me for a fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, supported by great listeners including Margaret Anderson, James Balk, Larry Doers in Costa Rica, and Eileen Weber. If you'd like to help and you're able to, log on to my website at peterbcollins.com. On the right-hand side, there's a tab that says You Can Help. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. In the second half of today's podcast, David Swanson, an activist who has been fighting for our constitutional rights for many years now, will join us. His most recent book is called Daybreak, and he's going to try to explain the convoluted way that the House of Representatives shoved another 30-plus billion dollars at the war in Afghanistan without actually voting on the bill that funds the war in Afghanistan. It's a neat parliamentary trick. And it leaves uh, fingerprints off <laughs> off of the damaging documents. But first, the Supreme Court has ruled in a case involving Jeffrey Skilling and Canadian media, media mogul Conrad Black. And it now trickles down to affect the case of former Alabama Governor Don Siegelman. Peter Gabriel song, Don't Give Up, because you've got friends. Governor Don Siegelman, welcome back to the Peter B. Collins Show. Hey, thank you, Peter. I'm glad to be with you, and I'm always, uh, always intrigued by your shows. And I know that, uh, you know, you, you speak out on issues that, that count and people care about, and I, I appreciate being on. Well, and we're making a little progress in your case. Uh, I'm sure you're not uh, doing a jig or declaring victory at the moment. But uh, as I reference, the Supreme Court surprised me with a ruling on one of the laws that was used to convict you. And it is the honest services legislation that the Congress passed a few years back. And the Supreme Court, uh, in a case uh, mostly related to the former Enron CEO, Jeffrey Skilling, but also reflecting on a, a Canadian media mogul, Conrad Black, and also a politician from Alaska, ruled that the statute was too vague and that uh, it could not stand. And then it later ordered the appeals court in Atlanta to take another look at the conviction of you and uh, Richard Scrushy, who was the former chair of Health South Corporation, 
and uh, this uh, he was convicted uh, in in the same case as you that I regard as uh, a kangaroo court with a, a tainted judge who should have recused himself, a prosecutor with a deep conflict of interest and ties to Karl Rove, and what was clearly uh, a politicized prosecution. Tell me a little bit about how your legal team is responding to these two steps. First, the Supreme Court decision on honest services, and then the order that, uh, in your case, the 11th Circuit is now required to take another look. Well, Peter, um, you know, all of that, uh, all of the, the, the Supreme Court and uh, their ruling on the, in the Skilling case and the, uh, with regard to honest services is, is more of a, a technicality in regard to my case. If I can give just a, a, a brief summary of the background. Please do. I, I, was, I was prosecuted. I was brought to trial and prosecuted. During my, my last run for re-election, during the campaign, by the wife of my opponent's campaign manager, the, the, my, cam, the, my opponent's campaign manager's wife is the U.S. attorney, was and is the U.S. attorney in Alabama. And it's amazing, it's amazing that she's still got the job, but let's identify her. Her name is Laura Canary. I'm not misspelling that. Laura, not Laura. And her husband, Bill Canary, was a longtime uh, campaign consultant, partner of Carl Rose, and worked for your opponent, as you stated. Well, yeah, he was, uh, he was in the Bush White House. He, he was the, uh, in charge of the national ground troops for the Bush Quail campaign when, when Rove was running that campaign. Uh, he was also an assistant to Andrew Card. He was the chairman of the NRC. He's a big-time political, Republican political operative, and after they lost the 92 race, both Rose and Bill Canary came to Alabama, both married girls from Alabama. Rose built his home on the Gulf Coast, and they, they managed and consulted in a lot of political campaigns. Uh, and that's when I first started doing battle with Rose back in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, it was Rose's client, the Attorney General of Alabama, that started my investigation. And again, the, the wife of his best friend, Bill Canary, um, who brought me to trial during my re-election campaign. Uh, we might also note that, that uh, Rove's bag man, I call him Jack Abramoff, uh, has, has put $13 million of Indian casino money into the state to defeat me beginning in 1998 and ending in 2002. This documented by the United States Congress. Um, so, you know, we've got this, this scenario set up. Um, I ran for re-election in 2002. My election was stolen. The credit for stealing the election was given to none other than Carl Rove's partner and another person uh, who went to work for a Tom DeLay, Jack Abramoff company. Uh, Upon my conviction, uh, my sentence uh, was enhanced for speaking out about the political nature, that is, the ties to Rove and Bill Canary, I was handcuffed, shackled, taken to a maximum security prison, put in solitary confinement. And and this, I might add, all stemmed from a campaign contribution, not to me, but to an organization I supported and was promoting, that is the Alabama Education Lottery Foundation, which was designed to establish a state lottery so we could send our kids to college for free. 
the, I was I was convicted of bribery. And so your listeners might say, well, you know, if this was all political, how did you get convicted? Well, as 60 Minutes documented in a, in a special program they produced February the 24th, 2008, the, the, the person who testified against me, a felon, a crook, as they called him, uh, had been made to write and rewrite his testimony, uh, was interviewed over 70 times by the, by the U.S. government, and made to write and rewrite his testimony until he got it the way um, the, the prosecutor, and again, keep in mind, her husband was my opponent's campaign manager, right. until, until he, the felon, got his testimony the way they wanted it. Uh, at that point, they entered into a plea bargain, reduced his 40-year sentence uh, to a uh, no, no time in jail recommendation. Um, I mean, this whole thing, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that this thing stinks. And I guess the point that I'm trying to make is, is if the government can be utilized politically, uh, manipulated politically by Karl Rove to come and get me, uh, they can they can do this to, to you, Peter, or your family, or any of your listeners. And I, I'd like to give just one other bit of background information. I, I had been Secretary of State, Attorney General, Lieutenant Governor, and Governor. I had brought in five automobile plants in three and a half years. With inter- I, I was the only Democrat in the nation endorsed by Charlton Heston, the president of the National Rifle Association. I know some of your listeners say, well, that's weird. You know, why is Peter talking to this guy? Well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Southern liberal, but I'm elected in a Republican state over and over again. And in fact, in 2002, uh, before all this, or actually while this was being kicked up, the Kiplinger letter uh, was touting me as the, the Southern Democrat to watch in 2004 who could be... Uh, you know, it could be a challenger for the Democratic presidential nomination. Mm-hmm. With all of that as a background, it's easy to see why Karl Rove used the Department of Justice to target me, to get me out of, out of Alabama politics and out of his hair. So, um, I mean, that's the background, that's the story, and that's how I was convicted, was through the false testimony of a felon who was plea bargaining for 40 years of his life. Mm-hmm. And we also should point out that the judge in your case should have recused himself, that uh, Laura Canary uh, pretended to recuse herself, but remained uh, in in an influential position over the case. And so it really was tainted from beginning to end, and and we did skip over a little bit of history. There was uh, an indictment in the first round that was dismissed before they brought it up again. And so they made great. Uh, they went to great lengths to put you through the ringer legally to prevent you from being a threat politically, either in Alabama or, as you point out, possibly on a national scale. Now, tell us a little bit about the impact of the Supreme Court order in the Honest Services ruling and how your lawyers are responding to that. Well, again, it's it's more of a technicality than anything else, but it does it does throw this case uh, back to the Eleventh Circuit. The Supreme Court vacated my conviction, sent this sent the case back to the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals, telling them to take another look at the Sigelman case. Now, um, you know what the Eleventh Circuit will do with that. 
I'm not sure, but yeah, you know, we have to argue the law and the facts before the uh, before the the 11th Circuit. Unfortunately, because the trial judge would not allow us to bring Carl Rove into the courtroom uh, to show that my case was had a political origin, and and to show and to prove that this was a case of selective prosecution, as has been proven by the House Judiciary Committee and reported to the Department of Justice uh, by John Conyers. But because we were not allowed to do that, that is not part of the record. So you know, the, the 11th Circuit is limited to a, a small group of facts, um, and, and not all of the facts, of course, were on the table when the record was compiled. So we, we are hopeful that the court will look at this and will decide in, at this point that, uh, you know, a, doing something for a campaign contributor, such as reappointing him to a committee on which he had been through three previous governors, two Republicans and one Democrat, uh, may be lots of things, but it's certainly not a bribe. If, if appointing a contributor to a board or position uh, can be construed as a bribe, then President Obama and all of his ambassadors would be in prison today. Sure. So, yeah. So um, we're hopeful that we will be able to convince the court that uh, that this is not a crime. And, uh, and of course, we've had 91 former state attorneys general, both Democrats and Republicans, who have petitioned the Supreme Court uh, saying, in fact, just that, that this is not a crime. Now, Governor, this did not actually come up to my knowledge in the confirmation hearings for Solicitor General Elena Kagan, now nominated to the Supreme Court and likely to be confirmed. But uh, it's nice to see that the Wall Street Journal noted in its coverage of the Supreme Court decision uh, her role. And, And let me read this and then ask for your comment. U.S. Solicitor General Elena Kagan said in a government brief to the high court last year, that prosecutors didn't need to prove the existence of an explicit promise between Mr. Scrushy and Mr. Siegelman. Requiring such a promise in bribery prosecutions would allow public officials and their contributors to evade criminal liability by making deals with winks and nods, she said. Now, I can't imagine that you were there cheering for uh, Ms. Kagan in her quest to be confirmed to the court. And this, along with uh, another uh, uh, Solicitor General submission that she uh, personally signed regarding to uh, regarding habeas corpus rights for detainees in Afghanistan, have made me uncomfortable with her nomination. And uh, it's disappointing that the senators didn't uh, ask her to talk more about your case. Uh, well, you know, Peter, there's something else too. I, I, I wanted to interrupt at this point because there's a. There's an, another important case that she took a very strange position in, and um, it involved two, uh, two black men who were wrongfully accused and convicted of a murder they didn't commit, served 25 years in prison before they were exonerated, and, and proved that the, the investigators and prosecution knowingly presented false evidence to get a, to get a conviction. Miss um, Kagan's uh, Solicitor General's office argued to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and as were, was reported by David Savage of the of the uh, Los Angeles Times on uh, January the fourth of this year, that that she felt that U.S. citizens did not have a constitutional right 
not to be framed. Said another way, the government does have a right to frame its citizens. And I mean, you know, what? Where are we living? What kind? I mean, what kind of a what kind of an argument? What kind of a person can make such an argument? Now, granted, what had happened at this point? These two men had been exonerated. They had been freed from prison after 25 years. It had been proven that they were falsely uh, prosecuted, that the government knew that the evidence that they were submitting was false. That they, were, they were then suing civilly to try to compensate themselves for 25 years of their life. Mm-hmm. And, and the government came in and said, wait a minute, this is the government under President Obama and Elegant and, and Ms. Kagan who said that it's okay to frame people if we're talking about civil damages here, folks, because we want to protect our prosecutors. Otherwise, they might be afraid not to present every, every bit of evidence that they've got their hands on. They may be afraid not to shoot every bullet in their gun. Hmm. Well, if they know it's false, they shouldn't shoot it. You know, what is, what is she thinking? What kind of argument, what kind of possible defense can she make with that? And I was so disappointed that not one senator asked her a question, asked her to defend herself uh, with regard to that, that position. So it is not just that she took a position against me, but she has also taken positions that make no sense whatsoever in the United States of America. If she had been the Solicitor General of, of Russia, you know, uh, during their, the height of their, their Stalinism or something, then I can understand making that kind of argument. Mm-hmm. But to argue that United States citizens don't have a constitutional right not to be framed and that prosecutors should not be sued for presenting false evidence is just ludicrous and flat wrong. Well, Governor, I'm glad to hear you speak up for the wrongfully convicted, uh, and certainly there are others besides yourself, as you just pointed out. And you and I haven't talked about this before, but for over 20 years... I've been involved with a nonprofit group that was started by a prisoner at San Quentin Prison here in California. It's called the Freedom Foundation, and our group uh, tries to assist inmates who have been wrongfully convicted. And it is amazing when you go through the files and see how uh, people were tripped up, were tricked, people who believed in their own innocence thought that our criminal justice system would eventually bring out the truth. And time and time again, we see bad cops, we see tainted prosecutors, we see judges who refuse to look at the real evidence. And it all adds up to a system that, uh, while I respect it and try to nurture it, at the same time I recognize the uh, very tragic flaws and defects that our system has. And it's only in cases that uh, reach a, a high level of publicity, a high profile, that people start to see the outlines of this. But it's a systemic problem, and there are many people uh, languishing in federal prison and state prison across this country today who simply don't belong there. And there are prosecutors who know it and who have an affirmative uh, obligation as an officer of the court to vacate a conviction that they know to be false, that they know to be, uh, you know, unsustained. And yet they, don't, they not only uh, uh, don't honor that obligation, as you pointed out, they have people like Elena Kagan covering for them when they knowingly 
uh, convict someone who is innocent. Well, and you've, you know, you've got prosecutors who are trying to build a reputation for themselves. You've got prosecutors who are trying to, uh, you know, you're looking for job security, and they know they've just got to they've got to convict a certain number of people to get it. It's just like you know, unfortunately, a traffic cop who's given a quota of, uh, of traffic tickets they've got to write before the end of the day. So they go out and sit and wait until they find somebody and pull them over. And, and it, but you know, at least at least they're doing it fair and square. Generally, you know, they've got a they've got a one of those wands that they hold up and they catch you and they pull you over, but. Prosecutors knowingly and deliberately present false evidence, as they did in my case, and as they did in this in the case in Iowa. Um, you know, it is it is, and, and they've done throughout the United States. Uh, unless unless we straighten this out, unless the government, unless Obama, where is all this change that he promised? But unless unless the government takes a position and says we are not going to tolerate prosecutors. Who, who lie and, and present false evidence for a conviction. And, yes, we're going to hold you responsible. We don't want you to go all out for a conviction. We want you to go all out for justice, yeah. for truth. And, unfortunately, uh, you know, these guys see going after justice and truth as being a conflict of interest. Indeed. And, Governor, just a, a quick note here. Uh, the Wall Street Journal that I referred to published this story about you and Mr. Scrooge on June 30th, and it included this false statement. It said, Mr. Siegelman has remained free pending the outcome of his appeals. And it, it, uh, that follows a sentence about Scrooge that he served almost half of his sentence uh, to date. And you were in uh, federal prison, I believe, for seven months, as you pointed out. Part of that time you spent in solitary. One of the reasons that you uh, went to prison instead of being out on uh, bail during your appeals process was that the judge uh, perniciously denied you access to the trial transcripts, which you need to file an appeal. And so I want you to know that I did call the, uh, the correction hotline at the Wall Street Journal, and ask them to correct that mistake. Uh, I don't know if they've run a correction so far. Well, thank you so much. I, I was actually in nine months, but seven, seven is good enough. I like the idea of, of, of not having served at all, but that, in fact, is not, not the case. But let me, let me, you brought up Richard Scrooge. You know, Richard Scrooge was a wealthy Republican contributor. I was the first Democrat to, to get him to cross the line. And he gave he gave uh, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and raised two hundred and fifty thousand dollars so that our children could possibly get a free college education. He never asked me, not once, to serve on this board. In fact, when I called him and asked him to serve, his answer was, "Oh, Governor, do I have to? I just resigned from that board." And this man was convicted of bribery for something I know. As God is my witness, he did not do. He has been in prison for something that he did not do, and it's only because the prosecutors wanted to keep him behind bars that he was not released as well. Uh, and this is the kind of injustice that, that, that we as a people of the United States have to fight against. And I am so disappointed in President Obama's, uh, you know, 
putting his blinders on and not looking backward, only looking forward, uh, because, you know, we're missing an opportunity to uh, follow the roads that lead to Karl Rove and the corruption and crimes of the past administration, and we're, 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 we're failing to restore justice in this country, and by, by failing to restore justice, we're threatening our democracy today, and, and it, is, it is a missed opportunity, and I hope that this administration um, and I hope that members of Congress will, will continue to pursue uh, what is right and will, uh, will, will you know, try to redirect this administration uh, back to where they should have been months ago, and that is looking at some of the past crimes of the Bush administration. So, Governor, when do you expect the 11th Circuit to review your case uh, again? Well, we, we don't know, but we, would, we, would, we are hoping that the court will give us some instructions uh, soon as to uh, when they expect to see something in writing from us and um, when they will, if, if they will, we're, of course, we'll ask for an oral argument. And uh, we would like to have a hearing before the full court this time instead of just three judges. Uh, this is an issue that's not just important to my freedoms, but it's important to every candidate, every elected official, and every contributor. Because, as I said, if, if they can put me and Richard Scrooge in prison for what we did, which was nothing, I mean, then they can darn sure put President Obama and a bunch of governors and their contributors in prison. So. Uh, you know, it, if, it, if it can happen to me, it can happen to lots of other people. And Jack Abramoff was released from federal prison recently. It's important to note that one of the reasons your efforts uh, kind of crossed uh, onto their radar was that you were trying to, set up a, trying to set up a state lottery in Alabama, and Abramoff represented Indian tribes, I believe, in Mississippi, and he uh, it was exposed during his trial that uh, he even got people like Ralph Reed uh, to intercede uh, on behalf of the Indian tribes he represented with these kind of phony objections to gambling expansion in order to protect the, uh, the franchises, if you will, of the tribes that had already set up casinos. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he, Jack, Jack Abramoff and uh, Ralph Reed, who was hired by Abramoff, uh, came into Alabama and spent, as I said, some $13 million to, to defeat me and, uh, and you know, to villainize me and make me appear to be, uh, you know, the devil incarnate. So it, they, they, uh, they didn't, they, they, it was interesting, you know, they used casino money to hire the Christian coalition to come into Alabama to campaign against the lottery. Uh, but that's exactly what they did, and they convinced uh, enough people to vote against the lottery, and so... Even today, the Mississippi casino owners are, are reaping the benefit of Alabama not having state lottery. Mm-hmm. So, Governor, um, I know that this has cost you a lot in terms of uh, your career, and it's cost you a lot in legal fees. Can people still help uh, uh, try to uh, uh, support you with a contribution at DonSiegelman.com?
whether or not I'm going to be able and how I'm going to be able to make uh, my mortgage payment and and support my family. I've, I have long since uh, not been able to help my children with their uh, with their education, and fortunately, they're both resilient. Uh, my daughter, who lives in, in Long Beach, California, is uh, paying her own way through graduate school and working two or three jobs. And my son uh, is uh, working and paying his way through uh, through law school now. So, which is all good and it's all positive. And we're not we're not whining or complaining. But uh, certainly, uh, my lawyers whine and complain when they don't get paid. So, <laughs> yeah, yes, if uh, if I could, if any anyone out there would be willing to help by making a, a, a contribution to my legal defense fund, uh, you can do so online by going to Don Sigelman, I before E, donsigelman.com or donsigelman.org. All right, Governor. Well, thank you for the update. I'm uh, modestly encouraged. I'm glad that you have continued to fight uh, to clear your name and to uh, really undo this injustice. And I hope that ultimately you will prevail. Please keep us posted, and we'll be looking forward to some action at the 11th Circuit sometime, uh, uh, hopefully this year. Peter, thanks so much. Don Siegelman, former governor of Alabama, here on the Peter B. Collins Show. Bonjour, this is Veronique Raskin. I am the CEO of the Organic Wine Company, and I want to personally invite you to join the Peter B. Monthly Organic Wine Club. Call me for the details, and I do answer my phone at 1-888-ECO-WINE or visit us at www.theorganicwinecompany.com A bientôt, j'espère, merci. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show. Think back to where you were the Thursday before the July 4th holiday weekend. Maybe at Costco buying 100 hot dogs. I don't know. But that's when the Democratic leadership of the House of Representatives put on a bizarre parliamentary game so that they could fund the war in Afghanistan without voting to fund the war in Afghanistan. And so far, the only person that I've seen online or in the media who's been able to explain this is David Swanson. David's a frequent contributor to our program. He was right here in my secret studio just about six months ago. His latest book is Daybreak, Undoing the Imperial Presidency and Forming a More Perfect Union. David was co-founder of After Downing Street. He fought hard against the Bush administration and for impeachment. He's a tireless activist uh, who came out of uh, ACORN and other groups, and he joins us again today. Hello, David. Hey, great to be here, even if not in the secret studio. Yeah, well, it's always good to talk to you, David, and I appreciate the work that you do. So uh, we've got plenty of time here in podcast land, uh, no commercials in the way. I don't have to cut you off to go to a traffic report or something like that. <laughs> So uh, give us a little background here, because we thought that Barack Obama had sworn off supplemental appropriations and that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were going to be budgeted through the main Pentagon budget in a transparent way that we could all see and complain about. But we see that the addiction to supplementals continues, and now they've come up with an even more bizarre way of passing the war so that individual members' fingerprints are not on the documents. 
Yeah, short of writing a book, Peter, there probably is never going to be time to explain what they did last Thursday night, so you can tell me when to stop. But uh, last June, they pretended that that was going to be a one-time violation of the promise never to use emergency off-the-book supplementals to fund the wars, uh, and then the next day revealed that there would be endless more of them, and nobody even pretends anymore that, that they won't keep doing it this way. So this was the second one during the Obama presidency, and last June, June, uh, you know, they, they, as they often do, piled unrelated stuff into the war bill. Uh, you know, they always do this as lipstick for the anti-war Democrats, so they have a, an excuse to vote for war funding, and as uh, a way to get this extra stuff more easily through the Senate, which loves war funding. Uh, well, when the Republicans all vote no for their own cockamamie reasons, then you can only let about 35 or 40 Democrats vote no, or the thing gets voted down, and you have to start over with a new approach. Uh, well, last summer we had a huge fight, uh, and 32 Democrats ended up voting no. We needed about 39. The thing passed. Well, here we, we've been 12 months with nothing but horrendous news uh, on the domestic economic front, on the war front, and so forth, and, and we had somewhere between 50 and 100 Democrats telling Nancy Pelosi they were going to vote no this time, damn it, no matter what lipstick was applied. <laughs> uh, and, and so there arose the question of how the House could then pass the thing. Uh, and I, in my ignorance and naivete, assumed that what they would do was they would separate the lipstick from the pig. They would pass the good stuff with Democratic votes, the school funding, the disaster relief funding, and then they would pass the war money with mostly Republican votes, and that would be that, and it would go to the Senate. Well, I, I couldn't have been more wrong. They came up with a way of effectively moving the whole package forward without ever officially voting on the war funding. Uh, and they, you know, they had passed this bill with nothing in it, and the Senate had added the war funding and some other things and sent it back to the House. And so now the House employed something called a self-executing rule that would deem things to be passed without ever passing them uh, and send everything back to the Senate. And then they voted on a series of, of four amendments, one of them being the teacher funding and the disaster relief funding, which passed. Mm -hmm. uh, and the rule said that if, if at least one amendment passed, then the whole thing passed if no amendments passed, then the whole thing dies as if we never brought it up. Uh, and then they voted on three anti-war amendments, uh, one to cut off the money, one to cut off the money except for withdrawal, which is just a cute way of saying cut off the money, and one for a complicated uh, set of anti-war measures, including requiring that the Congress vote again by next summer if it wants to keep the war going beyond then without beginning a withdrawal. And, and also, also there was an attempt to uh, uh, make more solid uh, a timeline for withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? Yes, in that same last more complex amendment that mm -hmm. I'm describing, there was a requirement that the president uh, or the Pentagon announce a timeline for withdrawal and an end date for withdrawal. It could be you know, 326 years from now, but some unspecified and, by the way, non-binding time date for withdrawal. Uh, and 
you know, last year, last year the peace movement had its act together a little bit more. Uh, and so we had this funding fight separately, without complications, and then a week or two later had this proposal for a non-binding, unspecified timetable for withdrawal and had a vote on that and got 130-some votes. Now, this time we got 160-some votes. Hip, hip, hooray, we, we upped it 30 votes. But uh, in the process... We provided uh, wonderful excuses for them to avoid even having a vote at all uh, on the funding. Uh, instead, they just had a vote on the rule, on the procedure to make all of this happen. Uh, and so that became the crucial vote. And, and many of the mainstream newspapers and wire services reported that that was the crucial vote. Uh, and uh, it was 215 to 210. It was 38 Democrats voting no, only a handful of them progressives, most of them blue dogs who didn't like the fact that they packaged a whole budget into the thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, by the way, <laughs> Nancy Pelosi packaged a requirement that they vote on the proposals to slash Social Security into this. So here we're funding the war and slashing Social Security in one in one vote that nobody even considers a vote. Uh, and so you pass this thing uh, with with the double excuse that it's not really a procedural vote. It's a, I mean, it's not really a, a substantive uh, vote. It's, a, it's just a rule vote. Mm -hmm. uh, and that you're voting yes in order to get a chance to vote on these lovely anti-war amendments. So you, you have someone like, uh, someone like Congresswoman Maxine Waters standing there on the floor denouncing the war and swearing that she's voting yes on the rule in order to give herself a chance to vote Yes, on these amendments to defund the war. Well, if you're going to vote on the vote that allows the funding of the war, in order to vote on a doomed, hopeless amendment to defund the war, something's gone wrong. Because even if those amendments pass, how in the world are they going to pass the Senate and the President against their will? Uh, whereas if the House were serious, not just about sending messages, but about doing something, then House members would, would vote no even on a rule. And, and there were House members who understood this very clearly, progressives who understood from their constituents' pressure that they had to vote no on that rule vote or they would have no excuse coming home. Uh, but there were others who thought they could get away with it uh, and may very well have done so. And, and you have Congress members now coming home and saying, I voted no because I opposed the war, and, and many others saying, I voted yes because I opposed the war. They they really did it to us this time. This is parliamentary whiplash. Uh, it, it is, it is, and and then we have our our friendly progressive parliamentary experts telling us, but no, a rule can't really fund the war. It's it's technically it's the Senate amendment that went back to the Senate and so forth. Well, the point is, that, you know, that we shouldn't be required to talk their language and engage in their obtuse procedural. Uh, shenanigans, we should be able to take our message to them, as some people did very, very well. And there were members who understood that they had no choice but to vote no on that rule. But we had three-quarters of the institutional peace movement based in Washington, D.C., focused on nothing but the amendments, because these, these cute anti-war amendments have been packaged in as part of the same thing uh, as the funding bill. And is this uh, supposed to be a sop to the anti-war uh, uh, coalitions that, well, you know, we put your amendments up there and they failed? 
Well, that's supposed. The, the idea is supposed to be that the, the anti-war folks in and outside of Congress got to have their votes, got to have their say and express their sentiments. And we moved from having 130-some members wanting Congress to have some minimal role in one of its primary responsibilities, war, to having 160-some. So presumably we're supposed to spend the next 12 months building it up to the point where we have 190-some, you know, and three or four years hence, uh, you know, we can get to the point where the House says, we actually want to have some minimal say in what happens with, uh, with our biggest financial investment that is endangering us all and destroying the world, uh, and then watch the Senate kill it. And my argument is, look, the peace movement can't build a coalition with anybody outside the peace movement around proposals to have non-binding, unspecified timetables or a new national intelligence estimate. Whereas when we talk about cutting off the money, mm-hmm. which is the demand that comes from our members around the country, not from Congress, then we can build coalitions with everybody who wants the money for housing, for schools, for green energy, for everything we need the money for. We can build a massive coalition around shift where we're spending the money. But if the peace movement is taking its instructions from Congressman McGovern, rather than bringing our demands to Congress, uh, then, we're, then we've got two hands tied behind our backs. David, uh, you have a touchstone phone there? Sure. All right. Well, what I'd like to do here is I'm going to read the list of the 38 Democrats in the House who voted no on the rule. Yeah. And I'd like you to push any button when you hear the name of somebody who voted against the rule for the right reason. <laughs> and, I, and I'm predicting out of these 38, maybe there are four or five. Let's, let's just run through well, them I'll here. I'll push the ones I'm sure of. There are many I'm unsure of. Okay. Adler of New Jersey, Barry, Bocheri, Bright, Childers, Conyers, I thought so, Dryhouse, Filner of San Diego, Foster, Giffords, Grayson, Grijalva, Halverson, Herseth Sandlin, Himes, Cradiville, Kucinich, Lipinski, Maffei, Marshall, Mashad, Minnick, Mitchell, Murphy of Connecticut, Murphy of New York, Napolitano, Nye, Perello, Peters, Pingree, Pomeroy, Schrader, Shea Porter, Schuler, Skelton, Space, Taylor, Titus. Thank you. Uh, as I suspected, I think there were five, right? Yeah. You know, most of those names are names that progressives have never heard of because they're blue dog Democrats. Yes. Ike Skelton of Missouri is... There, there are probably more Republicans who, who voted no for the right reason than Democrats. Yeah. Um, but all the Republicans voted no, and most of them for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And, and this is what is so strange, because the Republicans, uh, as a party, wholeheartedly support the Bush-Obama effort in Afghanistan. And we have seen uh, Michael Steele was caught on videotape. Uh, saying some things that um, I actually might agree with, but are very much out of line for a Republican national chairman. He's in the woodshed right now, and John McCain and others, uh, Bill Kristol, are saying that he's got to go for actually blurting out something that's partial truth. Yet we see the political gamesmanship that the Republicans play in a unified way, 
and that the Democrats play in a more stealthy way, because Nancy Pelosi did permit some of those people, like Conyers and Filner and Grijalva, to vote their consciences. But she was out there uh, buttonholing members to make sure that she had the 215 uh, that ultimately passed it. Yeah, well, the, the scandal of Michael Steele blurting out some obvious truth that at this point five-year-olds are aware of uh, came the day after this, the day before this, and the same day as this vote. The Democrats were, were sending out press releases con- condemning Republican leader John Boehner for a similar scandal, uh, for having blurted out the truth that what they were planning to do was to cut back Social Security and not let anybody retire until the age 70 because they needed the money to pay for for these wars. Uh, and of course, that's the Democratic policy, just as the same as the Republican. It's just they don't like to say it out loud, and they aren't stupid enough or drunk enough, literally, to, to mm-hmm. do that. And mm-hmm. so uh, here you have packaged into this same crazy bill, if you can even call it a bill, that this proposal to require that when this commission comes back with these proposals to slash Social Security, if the Senate votes on them, the House is required now to vote on them. And, and Nancy Pelosi will pretend that she has nothing to do with it, can't help it, it's, it's, it's a requirement, whereas she slipped it into the very same bill with which she funded uh, getting around actually funding the escalation of the war. Uh, and, and by the way, almost no one in the, this whole debate mentioned that this wasn't just a continuation of the war, but an escalation of it. Right. That was buried as well by the fact that they waited six months after uh, the president decided uh, to go ahead with the escalation unfunded. Well, they put it on a credit card in the meantime and uh, just <laughs> let it ride. In, indeed. The president threatened to veto this bill, by the way, uh, over one of the measures buried in the teacher funding amendment, uh, and that was the, the taking back of a small fraction of the money in this slush fund given to the Secretary of Education for his corporatist policies uh, to use to, to prevent the layoffs of teachers, because Congress is, was taking very much careful care that any non-war spending was paid for by cuts elsewhere, whereas the war spending, the biggest thing in this bill, uh, is on a Chinese credit card. Well, and and what you just pointed out there is bizarre, that, uh, and, and I agree with it entirely, even the way you characterize it, David, that Arne Duncan has billions of dollars in money that he is uh, dangling around. It, it's kind of like the old Carville line, you never know what you get when you drag a $100 bill through a trailer park. Well, Arne Duncan is is dragging, you know, millions of dollars uh, over the heads of uh, education regulators across the country to induce them to open more charter schools, which will lay off teachers, uh, at least teachers in the current public school system. And so we, we are working at uh, conflicting purposes, uh, all in the same bill, where on the one hand, we're trying to trim a little money out of Arne's slush fund to keep teachers who are currently working on the job and reduce the impact of, uh, of the projected layoffs that are coming down in most states, but most critically, New York, Illinois, and California. And, you know, <laughs> at, at the same time, uh, we are not actually voting to fund the war while we pump another 30-plus billion dollars into the escalation in Afghanistan. It is utterly bizarre, and it is, uh, we have to assume, intended to confuse the public because we're just dumb shits who really don't uh, bother to pay attention to this stuff 
and uh, we're going to follow their lead because, well, because Obama's not Bush. Uh, I, I guess we're still supposed to just operate on that axiom. Well, and even if you follow most progressive radio shows, not this one, and most progressive websites and activist groups and groups in the peace movement that send out emails, you would still have no idea what happened last Thursday night. Uh, And what happened would have been dramatically different if the peace movement had done the same thing it did last year and said, let's separate these things out. Let's deal with the funding and pass it or block it on its own, and then do these toothless amendments that send nice messages separately so that they don't get conflated. The one doesn't cover for the other and provide excuses for the other. Uh, and it was not a difficult thing to do. It wouldn't be rocket science. And then, and then it's not as if we would immediately stop the war funding, but we would immediately make the war be funded by a bill with the backing of purely the Democratic leadership and the Republican caucus in the House, with, with the majority of the Democrats in the House voting no. Uh, and, and this would be educational for people around the country who don't understand that their opponent, when they're lobbying their local Democratic Congress member, is the leadership of the Democratic Party. That's who they're up against. Uh, and we have to get to that point of, of recognizing that, of being able to hold people responsible based on what they do and having anti-war members vote against war funding and pro-war members vote for war funding. Uh, but we can't, even, we can't have an, even have that record to work from uh, because of the shenanigans that we allowed them to get away with. And David, it, it's interesting because I was momentarily fooled by this. Uh, uh, in my, my email, I receive a lot of press releases from different members of Congress. And I saw a very powerful statement from John Garamendi, a a friend of mine who used to be our lieutenant governor. He's one of the uh, least senior members of the House now. He was just elected in a special election last November. And he issued a blistering statement against escalating the war in Afghanistan. And I said, good for you, John. But then he voted for the rule. And so uh, can I give anybody here the benefit of the doubt Uh, Barbara Lee, Maxine Waters, uh, Lynn Woolsey, uh, did any of these people get misled into the votes they cast, or was this all done with their eyes wide open? They don't think they have any power to do anything, so they don't try to do anything. They try to put up the best appearance of attempting to do something, and they try to send the strongest message they can to the emperor on the throne in the White House uh, without coming into conflict with the leadership of their own party in Congress. Uh, And that limits what they do, and it puts a different perspective on what they do for them. So that they honestly believe that the best thing they can do is vote yes on the rule, And then vote yes on these nice amendments, even amendments that say cut off the funding, which is, you know, the nicest amendment you can conceive of. Uh, But if we start to think of of Congress as, you know, even if we think of Congress as just sending messages to the president, you know, wouldn't it be better like last year to send two messages on two separate occasions and to include the strong message of, we're going to vote no on funding this thing, and this is your own caucus voting no on funding this thing. This is your party opposing you. Uh, And then send the other message with the nice amendments. Uh, But if you were to think of Congress as, in a way that no Congress member does, as, as resembling 
you know, the first branch of our government described in the first article of our Constitution as actually doing things. Well, then you would be trying to build toward that day when a majority of the House says no. You would be thinking in terms of blocking bills, not just passing them. Uh, Because, of course, even if you passed a bill that said, let's defund the war, it would have to pass the Senate and the President. Whereas just blocking the funding bill in the House that would do it. No more war. Uh, but none of them even think that way uh, without a lot of pressure from their constituents. And, you know, Lynn Walsey and Barbara Lee, they, they have great districts there in, in the Bay Area, uh, but most of their constituents tend to take for granted that they're doing the right thing uh, and not to pressure them in the way it's required. Uh, the way that Shelley Pingree's constituents pressured her on this in Maine, which was to, to communicate to her that if she did the wrong thing, they were going to try to vote her out, even if the new person was worse. It, you, you have to reach that point of being willing to vote them out, even if the new person is worse. And that's, that's tough for a lot of people, and the members know that, and uh, they basically wedge us in uh, with, with that knowledge and, uh, and assumption. And in the way districts are drawn in, uh, drawn in California, uh, Woolsey and Lee have no significant Republican opponent. And so they know that uh, threats like that will not be carried out. Now, David, what about David Obie? He is the long-serving, I think more than 30 years in the House, chair of the Appropriations Committee, has decided not to run for re-election. So he's a self-imposed lame duck. And he has been making some noises Um, about uh, being unhappy about funding these wars. And he is the one who really does have uh, the power, not that he's willing to exercise it. But as chair of the Appropriations Committee, he's the one who could say, we will not pass out of this committee any additional funding for these wars. And he seems to have the right instincts, but politically is unwilling to take those steps. Well, the problem was that technically this was a bill that had already been in the House and gone to the Senate and come back with the war funding added into it in the Senate. So that Steny Hoyer, the majority leader in the House, technically had control of this thing, whether David Obey liked it or not. Uh, and David Obey could have taken a stand, as God knows he's never done and never will, uh, and Steny Hoyer could have still gone ahead without him. Uh, and maybe that's what happened. What David Obey did do uh, was insist that there be funding for teachers in the thing. Uh, and there was funding for teachers in the thing, although only $10 billion, whereas he'd wanted $23 billion. Uh, but whether that makes it past the Senate remains to be seen. Uh, and, and David Obey uh, clearly did not, uh, you know, refuse to take part, uh, leave the the, the capital uh, and say, I will have no part in this. It, it was remarkable when this bill was brought up Thursday evening and the the acting chair in the House of Representatives, Anthony Weiner, uh, said, you know, formally, for, for what purpose does the gentleman from Wisconsin rise? And, and David Obey mumbled, sometimes I wonder, and, <laughs> and, and then proceeded to present this bill. Well, you know, when you've reached the point of wondering what in the world you're doing and, and when you're acting against every principle you've ever pretended to hold, you know, that that's a, it's just such a, a tragic and sad state uh, to observe. Uh, you know, I, I would I would love to see someone like David Obey actually take a stand before he he, he left office. But now I, I think it's too late. Yeah. 
Well, David, thank you for unraveling this for us, and I hope people will go to your blog at David Swanson, S-W-A-N-S-O-N, davidswanson.org, and uh, read the piece and see the list of those who uh, voted against the rule because everybody else voted for the funding to continue Obama's escalation in Afghanistan. David, a real pleasure. We'll talk again. Thank you, Peter. Keep up the great work. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Call your member of Congress and tell them you know you're on to them. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling up.